Today, as we continue our study in 2 Corinthians, um, we're at a juncture of a part two of the entire 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1 through 7 is a one part of Apostle Paul's defense, political de defense about his apost apostleship, a true ministry and true minister of Christ. And chapter 8 and 9 is interestingly a, a sudden change of topic and the two chapters are, are about giving. And we're going to delve into that, uh, why that is so. In chapter um, 10 through 13, he deals with the minorities, still rebellious, and he turns into a strong challenge, a message, why it is important uh, for each one of us to live by the principle of God's power revealed in, in our own, each, each one of the strength, I mean weaknesses. Um, and he challenged very realistically. But today, <clears throat> I think it's important for us to uh, practice the right approach to, to scripture, which is we have so many things in our mind, and if we are not careful, we're going to read into things. So let's open the context, not only historical context, but the situational context in which Paul felt it was important. And what was the need? The need and significance of this giving on these two chapters at 8 and 9. Need first. Because of the famine in in Jerusalem and Judea, a Jewish Christians in Jerusalem became devastatingly poor. Uh, as the Jerusalem church affirmed Paul's ministry, the Gentiles and Paul and Barnabas actually, and if they're, as they're sending them off, Peter as the representative of the council uh, church says to Apostle Paul, remember the poor. And to which he responded, which I already eager to do. Once again, the contextually, contextually the remember the poor is not the remember the poor in general. He specifically meant to remember the poor Christian, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and Judea. As he travels the world in, in their perspective, in his min, missionary journeys to Gentiles. And that was the context. About a year uh, prior to this letter, the Corinthian church already expressed their desire willing, heartfelt desire to be, to be part of this collection. First uh, Corinthians 16 actually mentions that. But due to the strained relationship with Paul, or what's been going on with uh, the false apostles, uh, their opposition and rebellious side of, of it, the collection of this giving has been halted. So obviously, when they have a relational conflict, um, the giving is, you know, is this even legitimate? And they have repented, and Titus brought the good report to Apostle Paul, and now Paul is writing back to them in joy, and then having uh, resolved their conflict, and having restored their, his apostleship uh, leadership authority, he's reminding them, remember a year ago uh, you expressed that you're going to be part of it? 
Don't forget that. This is important. That's what he's doing right now. For us, the benefit is humongous. Because I am uh, fully aware as a pastor, uh, majority of Christians do not know the principles of giving, a New Testament giving. So there's a lot of skewed ideas and a lot of misinterpreted passages of the Old Testament practices. And of course, not just the lay people, but all the Christian leaders and pastors and church leaders and organizational leaders, so-called spiritual leaders, have practiced ill motives to skew the idea of giving. So most uh, unbelievers and irreligious people think of Christians and and pastors as people who are asking for money. And we see that in uh, religious TV station all the time. I think it's a Satan's attack tactic that the so-called Christian TV is full of those health and wealth gospel preachers who are asking for money and raising in a sort of ridiculous way. So I'm excited for clarity. Uh, We're going to probably set aside three messages, including today, to cover the teaching on uh, the New Testament and giving in chapter 8 and 9. But before we go into that, I think it's important for us to see why this was so important to Apostle Paul as the sent one, apostle, sent directly by Jesus Christ himself. There are at least three. This collection was important because, number one, it would bring greater unity among the Jewish and Gentile churches. Remember, uh, the first century Jewish Christians were considered as a sect of Jewish religion, Judaism. And what was going on among the Jews in in synagogue, there was so much opposition of including Gentiles, non-Jews, into God's plan. And in Christ, there is no Jews and no Greeks and no uh, uh, men or male or female, no barbarians and intellectuals. All are in one Christ, one in Christ. That oneness in Christ's body, the one family of God in Christ, this will become a reality. Paul wanted to see that. Number two, uh, this would bring encur- encouragement for the Gentile churches to give and share in mul- material blessings for the spiritual blessings that they have received from the Jewish church. And Romans 15 verse 27, specifically Paul actually mentions that. Don't you realize you have received the spiritual blessings from Jews? Now the, it's your turn to share in your materialistic blessings as well. And thirdly, the significance is that it would make a testimony to unsaved world, especially the unbelieving Jews. Isaiah 66, verse 18 through 21, one of the prophecies is that when the Messiah, the anointed one, would come, the revival worldwide will happen. The Gentiles bring their brothers and sisters to Jerusalem. The symbolically, what this meant was the salvation beyond the Jews, the chosen people. And this will be a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And on, on the other side, Jesus preaching of gospel centered around loving one another 
as you have as I have loved you, by this all men will know. Why are they, as a Gentile, sharing their 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 wealth? with the Jewish Christians that they don't even know. What's the real relationship? And this will be actually the power of the gospel, power of Jesus' love being shared, and that will be the testimony. This tradition continues on in our church as well. The Christian church is based on the historicity of church history, not only what happened and on the cross and the resurrection of Christ. So the question that we're asking is, what is this grace principle as opposed to Old Testament giving under the law? The law commands it. And typically, it's giving tithe and tithing. There are at least four clear, I would call it, grace principles that we could draw from this text. Here's number one. Grace principle number one is this. Christians are to give as an outlaw of God's <laughs> grace given to us in Christ. In verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And in this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. The first principle that we need to realize is the Old Testament and giving under the law is not the way that the New Testament Christians are to practice. There isn't single word tithing or tied in the epistles of Paul or along with others. The tithing was a command, especially, more practically speaking, uh, the, the Levites, a priesthood, the entire tribe was not to work, but to serve at the temple at, as a priest. And the 11 other tribes are supposed to give one-tenth of it to, to provide not only the land, but living for them. New Testament, there are no priests, priesthood because we are, every single one of us can approach the throne of grace with confidence through the blood of Jesus Christ. The curtain has been come down and there is no mediator except Jesus himself between God and us. As a matter of fact, Apostle Peter calls every single one of us, you are royal priesthood. So therefore, uh, the, the systematic changes in not having the temple, physical temple anymore, because we, each one of us are temple of God, these lawful giving 
obligatory, obligatory giving under the law has gone away. Instead, the New Testament giving is grace giving. I want us to get this so straight because the primary reason to give is because we have received grace. Grace giving is only possible when you have experienced receiving of God's grace. In other words, if you are regenerated Christ follower, if you are a believer who has salvation in Christ, you have received grace of God. What is grace of God? In order to qualify to receive grace of God, grace means undeserved gift. Qualification for grace is that you should not be qualified. You should not deserve. And then you cannot merit. You can't not pay for it with money. You can't really do certain things to have a brownie points. So which means the whole New Testament giving, you don't have to do it. But we are to give because that reflects the authenticity of our Christian faith, our salvation, having experienced the grace of God freely, generosity of God, an incredible way. I love this about Paul. He doesn't give command. He doesn't even start with the mandate. These are so important reasons that you need to give. You are to follow through. Having said that, instead of saying that, he brings up an example of Macedonian churches. The Macedonia is... Uh, in, from our point of view, it's a northern part of Greek. So, w- which I is he was he referring to? Philippi, Philippian church, um, Berean church, being Berea, Thessalonica. All those churches were there, and they were relatively compared to Corinth, which was like California. A lot of commerce and uh, trade was happening well off, think about Orange County, typically that. Northern Northern Greek and Macedonia was poor. They were going through a lot of difficulty because of financial difficulty themselves. Notice this outflow. Verse 2, in a severe test of affliction, abundance Uh, Their abundance of joy plus their extreme poverty produce on wealth of generosity on their part. Isn't that paradox there? Usually, abundance of joy and their affluence and comfort and they produced a re- the generosity, wealth of generosity. If this was true, if this equation was true, every single Southern Californian will be generous giving people. You all know one of the idols that we have to fight for in Southern California is materialism. That somehow money will make us secure, happy, and provide future for our children as well. But notice this. In affliction, a lot of extreme poverty, in spite of that, grace of God overflowed in them. So brothers and sisters, I'm, let me ask you. If you don't have to give, it is not a legal requirement, even at our church. 
How would you respond to God's grace? Have you experienced God's grace? Is your salvation in eternity real? That you did not deserve it, that you could not have merited, that God has given us a free gift. And, and notice another thing is a the word generosity and grace is he's using it interchangeably. So graced people are generous people. A generous, truly genuinely generous people are people who have experienced God's grace. Grace principle number two. Christians are to give willingly, without compulsion, to show our genuine love for others as well as for the Lord. Verse 6. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace, collecting, in other words. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also in giving. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnest of others that your love also is genuine. Oh, I think this is so important because there are so many wrong motives give and to God who sees the secrets in our heart, our motive is utmost important thing. But in the name of giving, there's so many different wrongful giving because the not necessarily the amount is small, Amount could be huge, incredibly huge, but motive is wrong. Let me let me mention a couple of a few of it for you for us. Number one, if I give generously, God will somehow protect my life, protect my family, and pro give us a blessings accordingly. Transactionally, if I don't give, disease might fall on, on us. If I don't give generously, my kids might not go to good school. My business might not prosper. A health and wealth, wealth gospel once again. That is wrong. Number two, in, even in, among the Christian uh, circle, this has been known, somehow, I want to show my spirituality by giving. The church that I was growing up, um, it's an immigrant church, Korean-American church. And the giving was important to sustain their church finance. But even as a kid, I couldn't understand Every worship service, there's an offering time, and the ushers bring all the offering plates. And the pastor will read envelope one by one, so and so gave Thanksgiving uh, offering because uh, the Lord heard their prayer and healed the son's sickness. So and so gave. Praise to God because their business is doing really well. Every single one of them. You know what, what non-Christians do really well, even if we don't teach them? Smell hypocrisy. With, with our kids, you know, too, right? 
So be, let's be utterly cautious about what Jesus said in Sermon on the Mount. When you give, do not blow trumpet. In social media, be very careful about blowing the trumpet, about your charity giving. I thank God, uh, even compared to what Steve Giordano last year, last week, uh, announced publicly announced how much we raised in, you know, Team World Vision Half Marathon for clean water for the kids in Africa. I I saw this morning there was more. More people gave, in other words. But if we are true Christians, we ought to be very cautious about any hidden motive uh, insulating into or penetrating into our heart in some subtle way. And, and not only as a giver, uh, one thing that our elders protect me really strictly, I don't know any numbers. Who gives what? I don't want to know. Oh, actually, more, more frankly, I am professing my weakness. If I know so-and-so gives how much, I know I'm going to get influenced. If I know so-and-so doesn't give at all, I know I'm getting influenced by that. What's another motive that you might have? Using this gift as some kind of uh, guilt offering. Lord, I've been doing this and I'm so sorry. Here's a gift to you. Please forgive me. No. <laughs> I realize one thing, and if you are not give, to give willingly, it takes the joy out of us. Because when you give grace, there's so much joy. Just the, the bubbling joy. And I could testify on a on a positive side, there are many of our members who gave anonymously and who knew some reasons that they want to keep their motive pure and they let God see who sees in, he sees us, our act, in secret, the envelope without any name on it. If you give check, it's obviously noticeable. There was a cash in it. This is for so-and-so and that an envelope. Brothers and sisters, grace means that you give in such a way that God's grace is experienced in us. So any compulsion, any strategy of giving, the modern church practice, it's not biblical. It's actually harmful, I think. I don't know our way is the best way, but our way of doing these things, being guided by the scripture, is our offering boxes in the back. Why? Because God does not need our money. And the church, church uh, growth principle people is, if you don't have an offering time, people will forget. People will forget. And I still remember, even you know, as a teenager, looking for that dollar bill. And if I pull out $10 bill or $20 bill by accident, 
it's too shameful to put it back. I'm going, God doesn't need that kind of money. God doesn't need that kind of giving. The grace giving principle has to be practiced biblically. And between God, this is discipleship. In other words, how you follow Christ day in and day out. It's not about church finance. It's not about church people's needs. <coughs> Ultimately. And Jesus said, uh, where your treasures are, and there are your hearts will be also. So you say, I love God. Your heart will be where your treasure is. The genuineness of, of, of our love for the, for the Lord. One thing I'm really grateful for, um, growing up in a mother and grandmother who is deeply godly. Starting my junior years, I think seventh grade or so, my, my mom gave me an envelope every Sunday. I had an allowance, and she taught me about giving tithing. And I explained even her concept was not completely New Testament, having studied this, right? But at least that idea of giving first fruit was correct. And her encouragement to me, Paul, let's say I get, a, I get $10 giving 10% of that it means nothing. It doesn't hurt. Who knows? When you grow up, God will bless you and you become a millionaire, billionaire. The 10% of that will be huge. If you do it daily and weekly, now when you become a lot of, make a lot of money, that giving will be continuous joy. That became are true. As a teenager, I had a joy every t Sunday when I take that envelope and put it in the offering basket. I knew God saw me. I, it wasn't important that people know me or not at all. I wanted to love God in a genuine, pure way. And one more quick illustration. You know I've been in a youth ministry for a long time, right? During youth ministry days, I think I've been in youth ministry for 10 years, um, by then, and, and, and Elgin probably remembers that we, there's a, a place called Brown's, Brown's Ice Cream. But that Brown's Ice Cream is almost like in and out because they make hamburgers on order, if you order. So I take the kids and, okay, you guys all wanted to go to Brown's. Okay, how many of you guys have money? No one. So I, it just, I, I was at part-time youth staff, getting stipend. I was working part-time at stop and, go, stop and Go. Stop and Go is like a 7-Eleven with a gas station attached to it. All my money. Not a single time I felt hurt. Like, oh, this is really precious money. But on the other side, the blind dates that I went on, people said, oh, are you getting old? <laughs> Those blind dates, every meal at this nice Italian restaurant, it hurts. I'm suffering. And like, this woman is just love, 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 love. I'm doing counseling. Oh. So that they know your love is genuine. My love for the blind date, eh. it hurt. 
But my love for the kids, teenagers, was genuine. Because I did not count. I, I could care less. Because I genuinely love them. God, God has given me that love. Grace principle number three. Christians are to give so that we may imitate Christ's generosity of becoming poor for our sake. Verses 9 through 11. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through he, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to, to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Of all the reasons and example, the ultimate example and model that Paul gives is the cross of Christ. Though he was rich, and obviously he's not merely talking about financial, materialistic wealth, that he had the universe in his hand. He was almighty God. He had the rights and privileges of deity for our sake. He became poor. Unless we become, he became poor, we would not have spiritual wealth in Christ. How did he become poor? For, for, for a starter, he took on mere human flesh. Incarnation happened. He was born as, not as a king, not in the palace, but in a manger. That he fled to Egypt as a refugee. He didn't even have a one coin for illustration about giving taxes. He asked for, borrowed a coin with the image of Caesar on it because he owned nothing. He owned no houses. And he didn't even have his own tomb to be buried. He had to borrow. He gave everything to us. And then Paul is saying, Grace is just not conceptual. Here's an example. I remember generosity is interchangeably used. Imitate Christ's generosity, his grace, his giving of himself. That's what Christian life ought to be. I think this is a really supreme example and model for us so that none of us can be boastful, can be prideful in giving. I, I give at least this much. How much can you really give to fulfill what Christ has done for us? Nothing. It's kind of, you know, God's coincidence, God's provision, not coincidence. Michelle mentions Psalms, Psalmist confession during leading worship. How can I repay all you have done for us? 
I'll lift up the cup of my salvation. There is nothing. How can we repay what God has done? So no one can boast. No one can be prideful. No names will be uh, remembered in you know, those uh, private universities building in, in the name of Christian University, the William Hall or different hall because of dona donation. That's not Christian giving. That's not grace giving. Willingly and generously imitating Christ's genera generosity. Fourth and last grace principle is this. Christians are to give proportionally to others' needs so that their, their abundance may supply our needs in fairness. I, I think this is the most practical um, side of grace giving in terms of how to. So let's pay attention to verse 12 to verse 15. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. This fairness principle and proportional giving, we need to understand it carefully. It's that the Apostle Paul quotes verse 15, from Exodus 16. So let's take a look at that. Exodus 16, verse, verses 15 through 18. In the wilderness, they were hungry. The Lord God sends manna. It's almost like a flake falling down, and they are together. Verse 6, 15, when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? But they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as a as much as he can eat, you shall each take an omer. Omer was a uh, half-gallon type of you know, measurement. According to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. And when they measured it, uh, with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. Each one of them gathered as much as he could eat. You, you see the point? The people who gathered a lot and people who needed uh, gathered less and there are to share. The mutual sharing is there. And then when they gather more, and when they are in need, they will share more as well. But how do we know this proportional thing? This passage gives us a, some kind, a very obvious principle, isn't it? Not according to what each person has, not according to... I, not according to what each person has, not what he does not have. So if you have certain income, setting aside proportionally, you, you don't have to think about what you do not have. And there is a need. 
in the church or even outside the church, the big side, big, you know, in, 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 a, in a sense that you are prompted by the Spirit about this hurricane I went through or there's a trafficking that you are burdened by or the wheelchair, uh, you know, our own brother Stephen is involved in that. You don't have to worry about how much you do not have. Give what you can. God knows your heart. And that's reflected in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. Apostle Paul said this. The instruction that he actually gave in the previous letter said, On the first day of every week, which is on Sunday, the Lord's Day, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that he, there will be no collecting when I come. There will be no collecting when I come. Is Do not give them, give in, in, impulsively at that moment when I come. Prepare ahead. But each person set aside. Make a decision between you and God. But in the principle of not minimalist mentality, but generosity, looking at what you have. Method, Macedonian churches, they give according to their needs, beyond their needs. It bleed. It hurt. But they were joyful. And if you're a billionaire, and you give a $10,000, it doesn't make you even blink. But if you're a widow, a single mom or a single dad who barely makes any kind of money and then setting aside this amount of money, however you might think it's nothing to you, $50 a month, for, for example. It pleases the Lord. So let me bring this together. A tithe, giving 10% of our income is Old Testament giving. The New Testament is giving, of grace giving. Technically speaking, you do not have to tithe. You heard me correctly. But the point is to give as an act of grace, proportionally and generously. Then we go back to this same thing about tithing. Although it's not New Testament giving rule, it is a wise guiding principle for how much we would set aside proportionally. And I would even add, the New Testament Christians gave 20, 30, 40, 50%. Early days of chapter 2, in book of 2, they surrender every possession together. Remember that, right? Why is this a good principle? Even as a pastor, my confession is when I have recently we had unexpected income. On top of that, we had a Kate and I had a speaking engagement. There's a nice honorarium. I, we didn't expect that. I, I thought we were doing it as a favor and maybe minimal honorarium, but it was so much a generous honorarium. And if you ask me, how do you, how do you set aside? Of course, generosity principle proportionally, right? But we recently moved. My in-laws came in to share our rooms and all these things. And our kids go to uh, this homecoming dance, the expensive dance. <laughs> Reasons, if you, the more you hesitate, the more it's hard to set aside anything. Kate and I shared, we should set aside, before any, any other needs come in, let's set aside 10% if tithing of that. Brothers and sisters, when Kate 
told me she actually did that because I kind of pressured her. <laughs> I had so much joy. We had so much freedom and we are enjoying our, our uh, the new house that's a lot more spacious. I'm going to close with a quote um, from Randy Alcorn. There's such a wisdom in this. The tide is a way to get us started on the path of Christian giving. It is not the finish line of giving, but only the starting blocks. Tiding is a training wheel's of giving. I highlighted that because I, I love that. Tithing is the training wheels of giving. Steady bicyclists no longer need training wheels, but wobbly bicyclists do. If they don't have training wheels, they don't learn to ride. Likewise, most people who never learn to tithe never really learn to give. Obviously, we need those training wells. People of God, brothers and sisters at Crossway, God doesn't need our money. We don't have to give. There is no compulsion. There is no obligatory rules at Crossway. Our giving ought to be an act of grace, having received from God generously, freely, with the pure motive of our genuine love for the Lord and for others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this clarity of your word. Thank you for your grace. And not only where we rejoice in Adrian's crossway story, but we are deeply thankful for the grace that you've given us. Your generosity is mind-boggling to each one of us. And help us in response to give willingly and generously without strings attached, without wrong, impure motives. So that not only you, you get glorified, but our joy will be pure and lasting as Christians. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.